So if you have your Bibles, open them up to Romans chapter 4. We're going to start at verse 9, and we're going to be looking at verses 9 through 15. I'll begin reading, and then we'll, uh, we'll go through the message. Romans 4, starting at verse 9. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised, or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. And to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised, but also walk in the footsteps of faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For it is the adherents of the law who are, for if it is the adherents of the law, who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. Father, help us um, over these next few moments to understand what's being communicated in your word and as we just sang, for your spirit to be present among us, convict our hearts, encourage our hearts, comfort us, um, call us to repentance as needed and would your name and your glory be the foremost uh, take-home message we all have from this time together. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So uh, dictionary.com was reading an article, and the article was about words. Dictionary.com has a group of people who are called lexographers. These are people who compile the dictionary. It's their entire job in their life is to think of words that belong and that don't belong in the dictionary. This group of lexographers uh, had an article written about words that are used so infrequently that they said, we can go ahead and remove these words from the English language because no one uses them anymore. So I'll give you a few of the words. You may have heard these before, but you probably haven't. The first word is brabble. A brabble is used to describe an argument or a quarrel. So you could say after church, I got into a brabble about where we were gonna go to dinner afterwards. Probably not a phrase you've heard before. Another one is frigorific. Frigorific uh, was used to describe something that produces cold. So you could say the fans, this fan is frigorific and it keeps our, our room a little bit cooler in the summertime. But again, that's maybe a word you've never heard before. And then the last one, this one was funny, yunker. A yunker is used to describe a young, noble gentleman. So you could say that our kids' ministry has girls and yunkers, but that would sound pretty awkward. Those are all probably words you've never heard before, and we'd probably be okay to take the recommendation of the lexographers or remove these words from the English language. I don't know that anybody would be disappointed if we could never use those again. But as I was reading the list of words, it made me think of words that we should also do away with, not because they're overused or not because they're not used, but because they're overused and misused so much that we should just start fresh and say, you know what, 
we've totally lost the ability to communicate this concept effectively, so let's just come up with new words to describe what we mean by this. One of the words that if I had my druthers and could remove from the English language, I would remove this word because it's misused so much would be the use of the word blessing or blessed. The reason I say that is because today, everything is a blessing and everyone is blessed. And the things that people say are blessings and the things that people use to describe themselves as blessed are very different than what the biblical writers had in mind when they used the term blessing. So for example, uh, someone gets a good deal at the grocery store. Cherries are two for nine dollars. Wow, what a blessing. Or someone doesn't study for a test and they end up getting a good grade anyway and they say, wow, you know what? I'm really blessed. Or you could probably envision with me right now the bumper stickers and the signs you see all the time. Too blessed to be stressed. Blessed and highly favored. Count your blessings, right? All these kind of frivolous uses of a really deep, rich, biblical term. And the more I consider the, the biblical meaning of the word blessed, the more I'm convinced that we should just redefine the term in the English language. When Paul says in Romans 4 verse 9, is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. The blessing he's referring to there is in verses 7 and 8. Verse 7 and 8, it says, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Additionally, in the Bible, you'll see this word blessing or blessed used by Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount when he says things like, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are the meek, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessing can be translated into English. Some of you have heard this before. Happy. Happy. Happy are those, Romans 7 and 8, happy are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven. Happy are those whom the Lord will not count their sin. Then verse 9 from our passage tonight comes in, and if you read the King James Version, sometimes it uses more uh, articulate, pronounced language. It says, cometh this blessedness upon. Blessedness there is that same root word, but it's a bit more of a, a declaration. It's basically saying in a more conversational way, is this blessedness or is this happiness only for the circumcision, people who we could consider religiously Jewish of that day, or for the uncircumcision, people who we consider non-religious or Gentiles. And then Paul goes on to describe what's available to both Jews and Gentiles. And this is why I think the word blessing is overused in the English language, because he doesn't say what's available to both Jews and Gentiles is a good deal at the grocery store, or a good grade on a test that you didn't prepare for, or uh, this one happened to me recently, and I did really appreciate it, a big car repair that ended up being covered under the warranty. He doesn't say any of the trivial things that we use the word blessing for. He goes on to talk about faith. And he talks about faith that is credited as righteousness. That concept is what I want to spend the remainder of our time just kind of honing in on and talking about. I first want to address what faith is in, in a real simple definition unpack what it means for this faith that's credited as righteousness to be available to everyone, and then talk about what's unique about, or what's uniquely Christian about the idea of faith. Because everybody says they have faith, and many other religions would describe themselves as faith. 
Now to do this, what we're gonna have to do is bounce back and forth between this passage and multiple passages in the book of Genesis about a man named Abram, where you'll also hear him called Abraham. This is a diff different name to describe the, the, the same person of whom God changed his name midway through the story. But Abraham, or Abram, as you'll hear me refer to him, is important because if you read verse nine, it says, for we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. Now I'll explain a bit on what this means and how it applies to Abraham, but first I wanna to try to, in real simple terms, define so we have a working definition of faith, right? That's a term we've all heard before. A simple definition for our discussion today is we could say that faith is belief that something is true. Hebrews basically says that faith is the evidence of things not seen. Oop, didn't have that verse, sorry. Hebrews says, but I'm, I'm uh, quoting it to you, faith is the evidence of things not seen. And what I appreciate about the Hebrews definition is it also talks about things that are hoped for, things that are unseen. And I think the Hebrews verse that I just paraphrased adds this dimension of faith does not have to have a seen or present object in order to be faith. For example, I could have faith that a plane will take me from a certain destination, point A to point B, even though I don't see that plane physically on the runway. And the way that I would express that faith would be by buying a ticket and packing my bags and getting a ride to the airport and showing up because I have faith in this plane, even though I don't necessarily see it from the time I buy my ticket, even all the way up to the time we're about to board. The plane sometimes lands 15 minutes before you take off. Now this makes sense in the context of our passage because Abraham had belief or faith that was credited to him as righteousness and Abraham acted in faith for a God to whom he could not ultimately see or touch. So Abraham was credited or reckoned if you read the King James, he was credited faith, meaning he received something he didn't work for. Biblically speaking, oftentimes actually that's pretty problematic um, because it can devalue work. And if you think of credit cards and all the times people get into trouble with that, you get money that you didn't work for. But this is a good deal, this is good news because Abraham's faith was credited to him as righteousness, meaning Abraham received for his faith in God something he did not earn. Now this word righteousness, very important to define and, and, and not rust past it. It doesn't just mean that God saw Abraham as morally good or upstanding or Abraham was a nice person. It means that Abraham was counted as right before God. And if you've been following with us through this Roman series, you may have noticed that there's multiple times, but in verse, chapter three, verse 10, Paul says, as it is written, there was no one righteous. No, not one. And he goes on to go, a whole, go on a whole kind of diatribe about how no one's right, no one's righteous, no one seeks God, no one understands, no one is right before God. And then he gets into chapter four and said, faith was credited to Abraham as this thing that no one else had, righteousness. That then begs the question, who was Abraham and what did he have that everyone else didn't? How does he get to be counted righteous and everyone else does not, religious or non-religious? Remember, the cases being made so far in Romans 1, 2, and 3, that no one is righteous, both the Jews and the Gentiles, the religious and the non-religious, everybody is under sin. So now we see Abraham, and we have to see what did he have that everyone else didn't. Now the easy answer, the kind of one-word Sunday school answer would be faith, but we need to look at Abraham's life to understand what the Bible means when it says faith in verse nine. So now we're gonna look, uh, kind of rewind back into the story 
uh, and pick up with Abraham, Genesis 13. Up to this point, if you look in Genesis 12, God makes his first call to Abraham and calls him to be a father of many nations. God then instructs Abram, as he's called in Genesis 12 and 13, to pick up his life and to pick up uh, those around him and to journey towards a promised land. And along the way, God makes multiple promises and covenants to Abraham in multiple forms. And one of them is in Genesis 13, 14, where he promises to make Abram's line like the dust of the earth. This is Genesis 13, 14 through 17. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had departed from him, look around from where you are, to the north, to the south, and the east, and the west. All the land you will see, I will give you and your offspring forever. I will make your offspring like the dust of the earth, so that if anyone could count the dust, then your offspring could be counted. Go, walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I am giving it to you. Now we pick up in Genesis 15. Uh, God continues, like I said, to make multiple iterations of promises to Abram. He makes the promise more explicit because in order for Abram to be the father of many nations and have this offspring that no one could count, Abram would have to have a child with his wife, Sarai, also referred to as Sarah. Now this is really an act of faith because the time, uh, the age at which Abram's called in Genesis 12, or Genesis 12, Abram's 75 years old. So he's pretty far along in years. Sarai, or Sarah, is also described as barren or unable to have children. So God makes a pretty radical promise to Abram, despite the, the common circumstances that a lot of us would consider not viable for childbirth. But alas, Genesis 15, God makes the promise more explicit. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, what can you give me, since I remain childless, and the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus? And Abram said, You have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. Then the word of the Lord came to him, This man will not be your heir, but a son, who is your own flesh and blood, will be your heir. He took him outside, and he said, Look up and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. Abram believed the Lord, and he credited it to him as righteousness. This is the same phrase that you may have heard in our passage in Romans today. Abram, or Abraham, as he's referred to in Romans, believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. So again, faith was credited as righteousness. First, I want to go back to the original definition I was giving us. What does this tell us about faith and how we define faith? First uh, observation we can make, uh, one of two. One is that faith acts. So God made a call to Abram, starting in Genesis 12, and Abram responded by physically relocating himself, moving his family, moving all those around him in order to obey God. Genesis 12:1. Uh, the Lord says, Go from your country, your people, your father's household, to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse and all the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. So Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he was sent out from Haran. He took his wife Sarah, his nephew Lot, all the possessions he had accumulated and all the people they had acquired in Haran, and they set out for the land of Canaan, and they arrived there. So Genesis 12, this is the first uh, kind of response that Abram has to God, and what it can tell us about this faith that Abram had is that this faith acts. Abram did not just have faith that God existed, 
but his faith motivated in order to act, or motivated him in order to act in accordance with his belief. And he acted in a way that was costly, that encompassed all the things around him. He took everything he had and he left in accordance with his faith. There was no half obeying God. He put it all on the line in order to obey. Just like faith in a plane is not just believing that it's possible to fly from one city to another, but it's actually buying a ticket, getting a ride, going to the airport, and waiting at the gate, and similar analogy, taking stuff with you, taking the stuff that you're gonna have for your destination. This challenges our notions of simply saying, well, you know, I believe in God. Many people say they believe in God, but the question is, does their belief motivate them to a faith that actually takes action, an action that will eventually cost them something? If faith is only faith, but it doesn't act, the book of James tells us what that is, right? Faith without works is dead. So the first observation we can make about faith is that truly biblical faith will act in response to the object of its faith. The second observation we can make about faith, and this is one that we observe more generally from the life of Abraham and not specifically from the passages I just read, is that faith acts, but faith acts imperfectly, or faith does not act perfectly. Abram responded to God, but throughout the course of his life, Abram did not respond perfectly. There are a few major blunders, and I'm sure he committed lots of sins like we all do, but there are a few major blunders we can point out from the life of Abraham. Twice, he says that his wife Sarah is only his sister. Genesis 12 and Genesis 20. Both times the basic idea is that he's afraid the Pharaoh or the king at the time will have him killed and take his wife. So if he says he's his sister, they won't try to kill him. But remember, God gave Abram a promise. He said, I'm gonna make you a father of many nations through your own people, through your own seed but he doesn't trust God, and in those moments where he's afraid, instead of believing that God will give him a son and allow him to conceive with his wife, he lies and says it's his sister because he's afraid. So he lies in order to protect himself. That's twice documented, Genesis 12, Genesis 20. Another example, this is probably the more famous one, Genesis 16, uh, God gives Abram, right, this miraculous promise that he's gonna conceive with his wife and they're gonna have a child who's gonna allow them to carry on this lineage, but he just gets tired of waiting. Genesis 16, Abram has no kids at this point, and he and his wife Sarah uh, decide that he should just sleep with Sarah's servant. And so Hagar comes along, and they conceive a, a son, but not in the way that God had promised them. So these are pretty clear, obvious examples of Abram not acting perfectly in accordance with his faith. These are, it's funny because he's kind of following God, but he's kind of not. It's half obedience, which another word for half obedience is disobedience. Abram messed up along the way, and I'm, I'm not saying this to bash Abram because we all sin, just like he did, and I have plenty of examples of my life of half obedience, which we could also say is disobedience, right? We have times where we say, you know, I'll forgive that person, but I'm also gonna hold on to a little anger and bitterness. I'll uh, share my faith with that person, but I'm gonna be very vague and do it in a way that doesn't make it seem awkward. I'll pray, but I'm also gonna have my phone in case I get bored. Or I'll, I'll give my resources to those in need, but I'm gonna hold on to just a little bit extra in case God doesn't provide, right? It's half obedience, which again, is disobedience. So faith acts, Abram acts in faith, but he acts imperfectly, just like all of us. So again, let's come back to the question. If Abram committed clear, obvious sins, like we all do, again, not bashing Abram, how is his belief credited to him as righteousness? Remember, to this point, we've, we've learned that faith is belief that something is true, 
And biblical faith acts, but biblical faith acts and it makes mistakes along the way. All of us have faith in God um, and we probably all have made mistakes. We've half obeyed or we've been disobedient. And that's the case for all of us. Everyone in Romans that Paul is talking about, we have faith and we mess up. So again, why is Abram counted righteous and so far no one else that Paul describes in the first few chapters of Romans is, is, uh, is counted righteous? The answer does show up even in Genesis if we were to continue with the story of Abram or Abraham, but let's first address how Paul deals with it in Romans 4. We'll pick back up at verse 10. Verse 10 says, how then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he'd been circumcised? This is Romans 4, the verse we read, verse 10. It was not after, but before he was circumcised. Now this may seem trivial to us, like it's just kind of a, a passing detail, but this wasn't for many of the original readers of the text, especially those who were religious. Remember we read in Genesis 15 uh, that, that uh, there's a statement made that Paul makes in Romans that Abraham's belief, i.e. his faith, was credited to him as righteousness. Now the order of this is crucial because in Genesis 17, God actually makes this covenant of circumcision with Abraham and Abraham obeys and denotes this promise to, for God to make him a father of many nations. So if we read in Genesis 17, this is where the covenant of circumcision happens. This is uh, after God credits Abraham righteousness. Genesis 17:3. Abram fell face down and God said to him, as for me, this is my covenant with you. You will be a father of many nations. No longer will you be called Abram, but you will be called Abraham for I have made you a father of many nations. I will make you very fruitful. I will make nations of you and kings will come from you. I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between you and me and your descendants for the generations to come to be your God and the descendants after you. The whole land of Canaan where you now reside as a foreigner, I will give you an everlasting possession to your descendants and the descendants after you and I will be their God. Now the passage of time between Genesis 15 and Genesis 17 is at least 10 years. And I think your discussion guide says 30. It's kind of hard to estimate how much time there is between the time God credits Abram righteousness and then he receives this covenant of circumcision. But it's years. It's not days. It's not weeks. It's not months. It's decades. The reason I say that is if you look in Genesis 16, there's at least a mention of 10 years between Abram and Sarai when they decide to uh, impregnate Sarai's uh, servant, Hagar. So we know it's, it's at least 10 years. Depending on how you break it down, it could be between 10 and 30. But anyway, Genesis 15, Abram believes God, is credited as righteousness. Roughly 30 years, Genesis 17, Abram receives the covenant of circumcision and obeys God if you finish Genesis 17, circumcises every male in his household. The distinction here is crucial. The order is crucial. It's faith before works. The reason this is a big deal to Paul's Jewish audience is that circumcision was one of the basic ways to show that you belong to God's promised people. When God promised Abraham a covenant of people, he gave them this tradition of circumcision, one that continued until Paul's day. So until the time of the writing of Romans, people in the, in the, in the religious Jewish tradition are still circumcising. This is a basic way to show that I belong to God's people. Paul says as much in Philippians. This is an interesting argument. When Paul is laying out the reasons that he should be counted as righteous, the first thing he starts with, Philippians 4, uh, 3, 4 through 7, if someone thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. And then this is the first thing he says, circumcised on the eighth day. 
of the people of Israel, as the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews in regard to the law, a Pharisee. Note the first thing he, he leads off with to say, if anyone thinks that they can put confidence in their flesh, it's me. And the first thing he says is circumcision. Even in the Old Testament, if you read the story of David and Goliath, the, one of the ways that David insults Goliath is he calls him an uncircumcised Philistine. Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? So it's used as an insult. This guy's not even circumcised. He's, he has no idea what it means to be a follower of the living God. This is circumcision is religion 101 to be acceptable before God. But now Paul says that Abraham was counted, at right, counted righteous decades before he was circumcised. How is that possible? The answer is faith. Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now we need to unpack this a bit more because again, so far we learned faith is belief in something in the Bible, faith leads to action, but the Bible, uh, everyone's action in the Bible in regards to their faith is imperfect action, as is the case for Abraham, right? He was credited righteousness before he was circumcised. He was credited righteousness, faith before works. The implications of that small statement, faith before works, are major. The first implication is who is included. Verse 11 and 12 of Romans 4. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness will be counted to them as well, and to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised but also walk in the footsteps of faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. So the breadth of who was always included is now being articulated more specifically. Those who have faith and are not circumcised but trust in God to make them righteous through faith, and also those who are circumcised but don't trust in their religious activity, don't trust in their religious uh, rituals, but trust in God to make them righteous through faith. Now, the existence of these categories actually caused some tension in the early church because if this faith before works thing is true, why would anyone get circumcised? Paul deals with that a bit in Romans chapter 2, Romans 2, 28 and 29. For a person is not a Jew who is one outwardly, and true circumcision is not something visible in the flesh. On the contrary, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is of the heart, by the spirit, not the letter. That man's praise is not from men, but from God. This echoes a theme that you'll see in the Old Testament, especially in books like Jeremiah, where God calls people essentially to remember what circumcision is to represent. Jeremiah, who's a prophet, calling God's people back to repentance, says this, for this is what the Lord says, men of Judah and Jerusalem, Jeremiah 3, break up your unplowed ground, do not sow among thorns, circumcise yourselves to the Lord, remove the foreskin from your hearts, O men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem, lest my wrath go forth like fire and burn with no one to quench it because of your evil deeds. So you'll see this with Jeremiah, like I said, other parts of the Old Testament, where people turn from God, and the call is to remember. Remember who God is. But don't just remember with an outward sign. Remember with what that circumcision sign was supposed to represent. And at the very least, we could say that circumcision covenant was a call to remember what God promised to Abraham. Remember how God was faithful to Abraham. If we were to read all the way through Genesis, how God continued Abraham's line and made his descendants numerous. 
Remember, though, but not just with the rituals and the outward signs. Remember in your heart who God is before you're tempted to go and worship other gods or serve other idols. All this to say, circumcision is an outward sign that's supposed to represent the inward reality that's now and has always been, but is now being articulated to be available to both Jews and Gentiles. The shift here that Paul's articulating is that God's covenant people are identified not by their works, but by their faith, faith before works. Now, a side note, um, this is how we can begin to answer the question, how are people in the Old Testament saved? How is anybody in the Old Testament saved before Jesus comes on the scene? The answer again is faith. Abram shows us that people who truly believe in the God of the Bible can be counted righteous even before they obey the basic religious traditions of the day. In our context, even before they grasp some of the modern doctrines that we have today. Now this doesn't apply directly to us because Jesus said in Luke 12, those who know the master's will and those who don't know the master's will will be treated differently. And the, the, the applicability to us is that we know the master's will. We have revelation of who Jesus is. We have the Bible translated in our own language. We have tons of people who could answer any question we have theologically. And so we don't necessarily get the same situation that Abram got, but we do start from the same place he did, faith. Those in the Old Testament, those today, anybody is counted righteous first and foremost because of their faith. Now I wanna come back to the question because the logic might seem off. Everyone's included in God's covenant people by faith, not works, but there are people who are imperfect, like Abram, but they're made righteous. Now, is it the fact that they're made righteous by their works after their faith? Like, do we all kind of get a pass into the classroom and then uh, by faith we get in, but then you gotta be an A or B student or else you're expelled and you're no longer part of God's people. God's dealing with Abraham in Genesis, I think will help us kind of clear up what this means for us to actually live and have faith come before works. This is in Genesis 15, seven through 11. This is right after Abram's faith is credited to him as righteousness and God makes a covenant with him. Genesis 15, seven. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, bring me a heifer, three years old, a female goat, three years old, a ram, three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, laid them each against each other. But he did not cut the birds in half, and when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. Now, this sounds weird, I realize that, but this is typical of the time and place in Genesis for how people would make covenants or contracts with each other. Essentially, what both people would do is you would cut animals in half, and both parties, so if me and Pete are making a covenant, both of us will walk through the animal carcasses together, and we will recite aloud the terms of our covenant. And the basic symbolism is that if one of us doesn't fulfill the terms of the covenant, let us be made like these animals. Let us be cut in half and made a spectacle of. Now, what God does with his covenant with Abraham is what allows Abraham and all of us to be credited righteousness according to our faith. So we'll pick back up. This is Genesis 15, 17 through 21. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between those pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram saying, to your offspring, I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, 
the land of the Kenites, the land of the Kenizzites, the land of the Kadamites, the land of the Hittites, the Perizzites, Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. So Abram falls asleep in the previous verses between the two that I just read, and God, who's represented by the, uh, the, the kind of smoking fire in the, in the torch, God comes down in, in a representation and passes through the pieces by himself, and you'll notice in the verses, he recites the terms of the covenant. So God makes the terms of the covenant. God passes through the covenant alone while Abraham's asleep, making him the only one liable if the covenant is not kept. In modern terms, it might look like this. Imagine that you uh, wanna buy a car. So you go to, I don't know, Monroeville Ford. Sorry if you're a Chevy person out there. But you go to Monroeville Ford and the dealer says to you, all right, pick out whatever car you want and then we'll come and settle it at the end. So of course you pick out your Mustang or your Bronco or whatever Ford you want. You get all the, the color and the trim and everything you want, the perfect car. And then you get back to the counter and the dealer says, all right, well, let's figure out how you're gonna pay for this. And the person working at Monroeville Ford says, in order to buy this car, you need perfect credit. And of course, uh, none of us have perfect credit. So the dealer says, all right, well, your credit's not perfect, but do you have a cosigner? Now, some of you know what the, the cosigner term is. Basically, a cosigner is if you have a car, or if you want a car, and you have bad credit, but someone's willing to put their name in the, in, on the line in case you miss a payment, that cosigner is liable if you miss a payment. And uh, let's just say you don't have a cosigner. No one's going to put their name on the line for you. And the guy at Monroeville Ford says, okay, well, let me see if we can make this work. Goes in the back, comes out five minutes later, hands you the keys, gives you the contract, and said the car is yours. You drive away, you're happy, car's paid for. And you look on the contract, your name is on the contract, and the cosigner is Monroeville Ford. No car dealer would ever do that, because they would lose money, right? You miss a payment, they're gonna get dinged for it. But that's a picture of how God deals with us. He puts his name on the line for our mistakes. He puts himself in there as the liable party for when the covenant is not kept. He credits righteousness to us, not based off our record, but based off his. That's how Abraham and all of us can be counted as righteous even when we fail. There's lots of places in the Bible that this shows up. 2 Timothy 2.13, even if we are faithless, he remains faithful, he cannot deny himself. He is the liable party for our sins. He swears by himself, he cannot deny himself. You'll see this all over the Old Testament, if you're reading the Old Testament especially, just mark down the number of times God says, for my name's sake or for the sake of my glory, he's putting his name on the line. A way to understand this is, think of when we were kids and you were you know, talking with your friends and you were saying, no, 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 I can, I can hit a home run. I swear, I swear on a million dollars. I swear on my mother's name, I swear on my grandmother's name. Essentially, what you're doing, which is kind of weird, we used to say this all the time when I was kids, is you're substituting something, something sacred in order to fortify your word. Put that on a million dollars. I can hit a home run or I can run faster than you, right? With God, there's nothing higher than his name. So he puts himself as the one who's held liable in case the covenant is broken. Hebrews 6.13, I don't have that verse, but I'll read it for you. Hebrews 6.13 says it very explicitly. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater to, to swear by, he swore by himself. 
He swears by himself. He can't deny himself. That's why faith comes before works, because the object of our faith cannot deny himself. So if faith is belief that something is true, and Abraham and our faith can be credited to us as righteousness because the Bible, in the Bible, God makes himself the liable one for our mistakes, what's uniquely Christian about the concept of faith? Because all three of the major religions, Judaism, Islam, and Christianity, would say that they have faith in God. And they would actually say that they have faith in the God of Abraham. So to answer that, faith in the God of Abraham is made specifically Christian, Romans 4, 13. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that, would be, that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. The good news here, distinctly Christian news here, is that as Christians, we don't ultimately look to the events of Abraham's life. Even his willingness, some of us know the famous story, Abraham and Isaac, he's willing to sacrifice his son, this great act of faith. All that was pointing to something. Just like God's covenant ceremony with Abraham where the animals were cut in half and God passes between them, making himself the liable party, all of that is pointing to something. Or we could say it's pointing to someone. Jesus said, John 8, 56, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, you are not 50 years old and you have seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Jesus says this to a Jewish audience. After he said these words, you know what happened? They tried to kill him. It was an impactful statement. He's telling the Jews that this father of your religion, this one whom God made this miraculous promise to and all of his uh, uh, offspring are counted as amongst the dust of the, 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 the stars, he's saying that person, this great patriarch, I came before him. And he's a 30-something-year-old guy talking to the religious leaders of the day. It's an audacious statement. But here's the reason that's good news. Abraham had faith, but Abraham also had flaws. David had faith, David had flaws. Every great person in the Old Testament who had faith in the God of Abraham had faith, and they had flaws. Jesus had no flaws. Jesus lived perfectly. When God made that covenant ceremony with Abraham and he passed between those bloody animals, what he's saying is that if this covenant is broken, someone will be held liable. And the liability meant, per the symbolism of the, of the, uh, per the, symbolism of the ceremony, that someone's gonna shed blood. God said this specifically through the prophet Jeremiah. This is spelled out uh, all in the Old Testament, Jeremiah 34, 18. And to the men who transgressed my covenant and did not keep the terms of the covenant that, I made, that they made before me, I will make them like the calf they cut in half and pass between its parts. The eternal, perfect God was willing to be treated as if he was the one that broke the covenant. And Jesus, who existed perfectly and eternally as God, came to earth and did just that. The wrath that was represented in that covenant ceremony, that wrath was poured out, but it wasn't poured out ultimately on the animals, it was poured out on Jesus so that you and I and Abraham and everyone who has faith in Jesus could be counted as righteous. That's what the cross is for. When Jesus goes to the cross, all the sins of Abraham, all your sins, all my sins are put on him so that we could be counted as righteous, so that we could be, as this passage says in context, we could be truly blessed.
Not blessed because we got a good seat on an airplane or because something trivial happened to us, but blessed, but because we can say we are truly made righteous in Christ. Our sins are not counted against us. Having our faith in Jesus allows us to be counted as truly righteous. Not because we're perfect, but because God doesn't break his promises. That's why when you read the Gospels, the account of Jesus and who he was and how he lived, they start with uh, a couple of them, Mark, or sorry, Matthew and Luke particularly, Matthew 1, Luke 3, they start with what? Genealogy. It's showing from the start, whether it's Abraham or David or even all the way back to Adam, God was faithful to fulfill his promise to everyone in the Old Covenant. To make God, or to make one big family of God through Abraham, where everyone's included by putting their faith in Jesus. And if you read those genealogies, you can look up the history of everyone in there. There's a lot of messed up people. There's a lot of sin. There's a lot of people who do a lot of strange things. They have faith and they have a lot of flaws. But even when we're faithless, he remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. We'll finish with verse 14 and 15. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. Essentially, if the promises of God are based on works, Abraham's works, my works, or your works, the covenant would never be fulfilled by anyone, and none of us could be counted as righteous. The cross is God being fully just to punish sin, being fully merciful to pardon us as sinners. That's what makes faith in Christianity distinct. The object of our faith is both just and justifier, which is language we'll get into later in Romans. But that's why faith comes before works for Christians. It's not all faith and no works. It's not works then faith. Faith before works. I'll give us some simple ways we can maybe apply what we've read today and then we'll close and take communion. We probably all have areas in our lives that we want to improve. You want to be a better mother or a church member or school teacher or whatever role you have in your life, you want to improve and Christianity certainly has a value system and a means by which we can aspire to live like Jesus and improve in those areas. But improvement in and of itself that's not rooted in faith in who God is, is null and void. There's this phrase in 2 Corinthians that I think is, is a, really could be a life verse, the love of Christ compels us. Before you think about how you want to be a better church member, a better mom, a better friend, a better whatever role in your life, remember. Remember that God has credited us all righteousness. Not based on what we do, not based on what we will do, not based on what we have done or who we are or what our name is or what our reputation is, but based on what Christ did. Remember that if you're in Christ, we no longer work for God's acceptance, we work from God's acceptance. Remember faith before works, before you seek to just improve your life for the sake of improving it. And also remember that God has given us a covenant people. He's given us his church to come alongside us and to help us live the life that Jesus made possible for all of us. A simple way to do this is to pick up the phone. Call another believer in your life, encourage them, let them know you're here if they need anything, ask how you can pray for them. But be the family of God that God promised Abraham. The church is the extension of that promise God made to Abraham that his descendants, this family, would never die out of people who put their faith in God, ultimately put their faith in Jesus. We should be a family. 
One of the ways that we can honor faith before works is to act like a family and support each other. Lastly, a few lastlies, I'm gonna give a couple. Faith before works allows us to be patient. Be patient with yourself. Be patient with those around you. God's method of working righteousness and, and, and bringing people along is oftentimes a crock pot and not a deep fryer. And sometimes I want it to be a deep fryer because I just want something to be done. But it cooks, it cooks slow. And oftentimes that means better results, as Pete can tell you as one who barbecues. Low and, slow and low, low and slow, right? You don't want to burn it. But take Abram, for example, right? God credits him as righteous. And then decades later, he fulfills the basic 101 of their day religiously and fulfills the covenant of circumcision. What this means is that there are probably people in your life who you're really frustrated with. And those people could be yourself. The same sins you're committing over and over and over again. Or the son or the daughter who seems like they've strayed from the faith. The person in your life who's always kind of on the tip but not ever fully crossed over and entrusting themselves to the Lord. That person who seems stuck in sin. That coworker that gets on your nerves. We can be patient with them. Now patience doesn't mean that we're indifferent to people's sin. It doesn't mean that we never confront anyone. Patience means that we can always hope that people can truly turn from their sin. Because if faith comes before works, anything we want to see in someone's life can be accomplished if God grants them saving faith. Practically speaking, the way this could look, if you don't know how to help that person who's caught in the same sin cycle, if you don't know how to deal with that son or daughter or that family member who's always seemingly committing the same mistakes, remember to pray for them. And you don't even have to pray for their circumstance. Pray that God grants them faith. Because if God grants them faith, just like God was faithful to Abraham, God's faithful through David, God's faithful through every person in the Old Testament, all of the promises of the Old Testament are yes and amen in Jesus. God will be faithful to mature and to save those to whom he is called. So pray that God will grant those in your life faith. And even yourself, if you find yourself committing the same sins, ask God to strengthen your faith. A final application, and a simple one, but a powerful one, is how we interact with other people. When you talk to people on a day-to-day -day basis, ask them what faith means to them. Everyone has faith in something. Oftentimes, I think we can overcomplicate what it means to evangelize or share the gospel with someone and think that we have to preach a sermon to them, and I'm obviously not against preaching sermons, but sometimes we can simplify evangelism and sometimes the easiest way to evangelize is to ask someone a question. Ask them, and then listen intently for their response. Ask them what faith means to them, and then be ready to explain, as a Christian, what faith means to you, who Jesus is, and why you've put your faith in him. The Bible says we should always re be ready to give a defense for the hope that's in us. Maybe that's something you just journal out, or spend five or 10 minutes thinking and meditating on, and just have ready to share with someone when you talk about faith with them. Have an answer ready and be ready to share it in a simple conversation because faith before works is good news. And all of us, hopefully now, will stop overusing the word blessed and when we hear it, think yes, we are blessed because for those of us who have trusted in Jesus, our faith can be credited to us as righteousness. That's good news. So we're gonna take communion in a second and um, I think the, the basic question I want us to think about as we sing and 
and remember who Jesus is by taking communion. We all may be in different places with Jesus, those of us who are here in the room, those of us who are watching on the live stream. The question that it comes down to is, like I said, we all have faith in something, and the question is, what is the object of our faith? If it's Jesus, we can be assured that trusting our lives to him, not just like halfway in trusting our lives, but fully giving ourselves over to him, putting our whole life in Jesus's hands will be credited to us as righteousness. And maybe you've never done that before. Maybe you've never fully committed to want to turn and follow and entrust Jesus, not just to guide your life, but to be the source of righteousness. You can do that tonight. And if you do, we'd love to talk with you afterwards, talk to Eddie or Pete or myself or Chris or another believer in your life whom you know. And we'd love to just walk through that, what that means for you. But even if you're here tonight and you're a believer who's known Jesus for some amount of time, take this as an opportunity to uh, reorient yourself to trusting fully in Jesus because his righteousness is sufficient. We can trust in him and we can give thanks to him, which is what we're gonna do in a second when we take communion. I'll pray and then the worship team will, will lead us in a song and then we'll come up and, and take the elements together. Lord, help us to remember the, the priority and the true blessing that we receive through having faith in you. Remove anything in our life that prevents us from dropping it all and putting it all in the bucket with you, not in a perfect way, but in a committed way. Help us to entrust everything to you, to ask your help with everything, to ask the Holy Spirit to fill us and help us to obey you in every area of our life. Again, not that we're perfect, but that we have an ongoing one thing that we seek to be with the Lord, to seek the Lord in his temple. Purify our hearts. Give us that singular desire to know you and to be conformed to your image. Help us this week to live not by our own strength, to live not just for self-improvement's sake, but for the sake of true faith, for trusting Jesus and wanting to live like him in every area of our life. Help us to trust you. Help us to, to remove the areas in where we see ourselves as self-righteous or we wanna boast in what we've done or what we could do or who we could be and help us to trust fully in Jesus. Help us to come back to simple faith that can be credited to us as righteousness. Help us to do that in Jesus' name, amen.